Hi everyone, I hope that you are well and that this has been another week of God's grace in your life. We continue today with our sermon series, Spiritual Disciplines, Habits for Wholeness. I did just want to say to those of you who are listening on the WhatsApp that this isn't my usual kind of preaching. Usually I do what I call expository preaching, taking a particular passage and going through it part by part, giving an outline and explaining some of the details of the passage. I think that is still the very best way of preaching. But this sermon series is more topical. Uh, looking at spiritual disciplines, it's easier to take a topic like prayer or fasting and look at various verses. I will come back to expository preaching. I think that that is still the most important way of preaching. But just to let you know that over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at various topics. So far in this series, we've laid some of the groundwork for why we should be involved in these habits for wholeness. Today, we shift gear as we begin to look at how we practice spiritual disciplines. And today, I'd like us to look at the twofold discipline of solitude and silence. This is really one of the foundational disciplines, just spending some time alone, quietly with God. And out of that may come prayer and Bible reading and studying and fasting. But all of those other elements are built on this foundation of being alone quietly before God. It's one of the disciplines that we see very clearly in the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And if you think through the Gospels carefully, you will find many instances of this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that after his baptism and before he began his public ministry, Jesus went out into the desert where he spent 40 days and nights alone with God. Luke tells us in chapter 6 that on the night before he chose his 12 disciples, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus hears the news that his cousin and friend, John the Baptist, has been killed. And we read, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Ten verses later, we read that after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he sends his disciples away, dismisses the crowd, and then he went up on a mountainside by himself. To pray. In Mark chapter 1, we read how Jesus spends a very long day healing all sorts of people, spending a long time with them. And then Mark tells us that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In Mark chapter 6, we read how the twelve disciples come back from a short-term missions trip full of enthusiasm for what has happened. And Jesus says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. 
In Matthew chapter 17, we read how Jesus and Peter and James and John go up the mountain, and it's while Jesus is praying that he is transfigured before them. And then near the end of his life, the night before his death, where do we find Jesus? In the Garden of Gethsemane, alone, speaking with his Father. We could go on and mention even more verses, but I think that what we've seen demonstrates the point. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It was his habit. And if we want to be like Jesus and live a life like his, it needs to be our habit too. Let's just think about silence for a moment. Perhaps you could pause this recording now and spend just one minute in silence. How many of you felt uncomfortable during those 60 seconds of silence? And in fact, it probably wasn't even complete silence. You could still hear the traffic. There was the noise of the room in which you find yourself. There's always the noise in our heads. But it's amazing to me how quickly I can become uncomfortable, even with only relative silence. Our world is not geared for silence. Our world does not like silence. Something always has to be happening. On television, everything always has to be moving. You can't have a camera angle longer than 20 seconds. There must be movement and there must be noise. We can't escape noise in our world. When we drive to work in our cars, we listen to the radio. While we're driving, there's visual noise too, signboards and newspaper headlines. You get to the shops and the shopping centre is playing one set of music and each individual shop is playing their own music too. And in the midst of all of this busyness and action and noise, God comes to us with a very important command. Psalm 46 and verse 10. God says to us, Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Be quiet. Stop and know that I am God. Why does God tell us to be quiet? Why did Jesus spend time in quietness and solitude? What does silence do for us? Well, let me suggest six reasons for us to spend time alone in quiet with God. I've pinched some of these headings from Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Firstly, and most importantly, being alone and being quiet with God allows me to hear God's voice. Whitney points out that there are some good biblical examples of this. In 1 Kings chapter 19, for example, we read about Elijah going to Mount Horeb, where he heard the gentle whisper of God's voice. In Habakkuk chapter 2, we read how Habakkuk stands at the watchtower and waits there to listen to what God would say to him. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes how after his conversion, he went away to Arabia so that he could be alone with God. And of course, we've already looked at the numerous examples from the life of Jesus himself. 
We spend time in silence and solitude in order to more clearly hear the voice of God. I've mentioned that we live in a world that is very noisy and all day long we hear all sorts of different voices. And because of that, it's important for us to turn down the volume so that we can hear God's voice. That doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world permanently. We tune into God's voice in silence and solitude precisely so that we can go back into the world and hear his still small voice even among the clamour and the urgency of all the other voices. When we lived in Kimberley, we got to know a very special man called Darnie, who lived in a home for the disabled. We got to know him through a mutual friend at church. Darnie had been a policeman, but he was involved in an accidental shooting during a hunting trip. He was shot in the head, which left him a quadriplegic, and he also had speech difficulties. What was even more complicated to me was that he was Afrikaans. But we got to know him, and the girls and I used to regularly visit him at one stage just about every week. When we moved to Cape Town, I didn't have contact with Dani for quite a few months, and it was so interesting. The first time I phoned him, I really battled to understand him. And I realized it wasn't because of him. It was because of me. Because I'd not heard his voice for a few weeks, I found it difficult to understand him. I needed regular contact to really be able to hear him. And the same is true of us. In order to be able to hear the still, small voice of God amidst the clamor, we need to withdraw and tune into him on a regular basis. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. We often speak about having a quiet time, but sometimes that quiet time isn't particularly quiet at all. We sometimes fill the space with so much activity, reading the Bible, reading a devotional book, writing in a journal, speaking to God in prayer, we forget to actually be quiet. I'm not suggesting that we don't do those other things. As we'll see, they're vitally important, but they need to come out of silence rather than replace the silence. We'll come to the practical side of this in a moment, but perhaps just beginning our time with God with a few minutes of silence and then continuing our time with God in an attitude of quiet and listening. There's a very wonderful scene in the book of First Samuel where the young boy Samuel hears God's voice for the very first time. I'm sure you remember it. Samuel is about 12 years old and he's sleeping in the tabernacle and he hears a voice calling him, Samuel, Samuel. He presumes it's the old priest, Eli, and so he goes running to Eli's room and wakes him up and says, You called me. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And the same thing happens again, and then a third time. And Eli finally realizes it must be God calling Samuel. And so he says to him, Go back and lie down, 
And if he calls you again, say to him, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And that's what happens. God calls to Samuel again, and Samuel answers, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. In our busy world and in our busy lives, I think that we get it the wrong way around so often. Instead of us saying to God, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening, we often say, Listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. There is a place for reading and a place for speaking, but there is also a place for listening. Secondly, silence can be an expression of worship. Worship doesn't always require words and sounds and song and instruments. Worship can also be silent appreciation particularly if you're out in the garden or out in nature. In Habakkuk chapter 2, we read, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There are times to speak to God, and there are times simply to behold and adore him in silence. If you think about it, silence is an indication of intimacy. Being silent with a stranger is extremely awkward, but being silent with your spouse or close friend is an indication that you are comfortable, even intimate, with them. The American reporter Dan Rather once interviewed Mother Teresa, and at one point in the interview he asked her, When you pray, what do you say to God? Mother Teresa replied, I don't say anything. I listen. Dan Rather said, All right. When God speaks to you then, what does he say? Mother Teresa replied, He doesn't say anything. He listens. And if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. I wonder how many of us do understand this. How many of us have sat with God like you would sit with a close friend or you would sit with your marriage partner and neither of you say anything, but there is a depth of closeness and companionship and love, even in the silence. Thirdly, silence engenders humility. Going back to that verse in Psalm 46 for a moment where God says, be still and know that I am God. Some of you may know that the Latin for be still is the word vacate, which is where we get our English word vacation from. In other words, God invites us to take a holiday from being God for a while and let him be God instead. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes has this advice for us in chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. There's a great illustration of the sacrifice of fools in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus is transfigured before his disciples and appears in his pre-existent glory along with Moses and Elijah. Luke tells us that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
And Luke says, he did not know what he was saying. (laughs) The sacrifice of fools. The writer of Ecclesiastes goes on to say in that same chapter, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Yes, God is a loving Father who longs to hear from us and listens with utter interest to our most inane ramblings. But there is a danger in our coming to God and filling the time with speech rather than humbling ourselves before the God of the universe and listening to his voice. The psalmist prays in Psalm 131, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul. Again, quietness and humility go together. Linked to humility, we can say fourthly that silence also engenders faith. Michael Card sings a song in which he speaks about Jesus being God's final perfect word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. And Michael Card begins his song by saying this, You and I, we use so many clumsy words. The noise of what we often say is not worth being heard. Those images really strike me. Clumsy words. The noise of what we often say. You see, we often use our words to manipulate others and promote ourselves, which, if you think about it, is placing our faith and trust in ourselves and our own abilities rather than trusting God. Richard Foster speaks about this in his classic book, Celebration of Discipline. Let me read to you what he says. One reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I've done some wrong thing, or even some right thing that I think you may misunderstand, and discover that you know about it, I will be very tempted to help you understand my action. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit, simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. One of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. We sometimes worry, if we are silent, who will take control? God will take control, but we will never let him take control until we trust him. Silence is intimately related to trust. Just like keeping the Sabbath is a way of trusting God to provide for our needs when we aren't working, 
So keeping silent is a way of trusting that God will provide for us and defend us without our having to justify or explain ourselves or otherwise manipulate others with our words. And that links very neatly to the fifth reason for silence and solitude, learning to control our tongues. Now, this is an entire sermon on its own. I know, I've preached it. (laughs) The Bible has a great deal to say about learning to tame the tongue. James chapter 1 and verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But notice something else that James says a little later in chapter 3. He speaks about how the tongue is so small but can do such great damage. He speaks about how a huge horse can be directed by a small bit or a large ship can be steered by a small rudder in whatever direction a person chooses. And he says this, verse 2, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So learning to control our tongue is a fundamental step in learning to take control over other areas of our lives too. Silence isn't intended to isolate us from others though. As one writer puts it, like Jesus, we must go away from people so that we can be truly present when we are with people. The fruit of solitude is increased sensitivity and compassion for others. There comes a new freedom to be with people. There is a new attentiveness to their needs, new responsiveness to their hurts. Thomas Merton observes, It is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers and sisters. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers and sisters for what they are, not for what they say. And finally, we engage in silence and solitude to be physically and spiritually restored. Remember Jesus' words in Mark chapter 6, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Or the words of Psalm 23, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So often I try to get rest and restoration through activities that actually wind me up even more. I enjoy a good movie, for example, But sadly, most movies have morals that are the antithesis of what I believe deep within my heart. It's no wonder that movies don't refresh and restore my soul. In my own life at the moment, I'm trying to practice what we read about in the life of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, we read how the Amalekites raid David's hometown of Ziglag while he and his men are out to war. They cart off all the possessions and people, all the men's wives and their children. David and his men get back to a heap of burning rubble. Not only does David have his own grief to contend with, but we read that his men are so angry that they're talking about stoning David to death. 
And in the midst of his exhaustion and sorrow and fear, we read these words. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Finding strength in God rather than movies seems a little unrealistic. Doesn't sound quite as exciting as the latest Hollywood blockbuster. But I suspect that there is a depth of rest and restoration in God that nothing else can truly satisfy. God weeps over his people Israel in Isaiah chapter 30, and he says this about them. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Well, thinking about these things often stirs us on the inside. We think, yes, this is great. I should do this. The important question is, how do we do this? And let me make a couple of practical suggestions here. Firstly, start small. Donald Whitney says that there's a Christian radio station in his area that has a 30-second spot to emphasize the benefits of silence. And after that, they give just 10 seconds of silence. He says, as simple as that sounds, the impact of that moment is quite remarkable. It's possible to provide that same kind of refreshment throughout the day as we stand in a queue, when we're stuck at the traffic lights, in a lift, it's an opportunity just for us to turn our thoughts to God, to tune into God, even in the busyness around us. So start with just a minute, here or there. Secondly, work towards a daily quiet time. Perhaps you're there already. Perhaps at the moment you meet with God once or twice a week or once or twice a month. But do try as far as possible to work your way towards a daily quiet time with God. Last year, I set myself the goal of running three times a week. The problem was that if I missed one or two sessions, then I could go for two or three weeks without running at all. And stopping running and then trying to start again is no fun. This year, I decided that I would try and run every afternoon. And that's meant that even if I have had to skip a day here or there, I'm still running about five times a week, as opposed to three or two times a week. Try to work towards a daily quiet time. It doesn't need to be for too long, but just at the beginning of the day, come before God and simply be quiet. Recognize him as God. Listen for his voice. Commit the day into his hands. And then begin to add some of the other elements to that time too. Some of the other disciplines that we'll look at later in the series. Let me mention a couple of other things in relation to a daily quiet time. Firstly, find a time and a place. Preferably the same time and even the same place. There's something very useful even about using the same place. It just gives continuity and a sense that when I am in this chair at this time, I'm specifically seeking after God. Secondly, expect 
distractions. I find that when I try to be quiet, the noise in my head increases in volume. Whenever I sit down to have a quiet time, I immediately remember a number of things that I need to do. I suddenly remember that I have to email someone, and before I realize it, I'm walking up to the computer, or I'll remember that I need to phone someone. It's absolutely amazing. Some days I'm so forgetful, I can barely remember my own name, but let me sit quietly for a few minutes in a chair, and suddenly I remember 12 different things I should have done weeks ago. What I've found works well is if I take a pen and a piece of paper with me to my chair, and then if I do suddenly remember something that I should be doing, I just jot it down on the piece of paper to remember for later. Thirdly, after starting small and working towards a daily quiet time, schedule in some longer times of solitude and silence. You can't do this without doing the other two steps. As Whitney points out, the person who rarely exercises struggles with both the climb up the stairs and a mile run. The one who jogs every day has no trouble with either. In the same way, the person who has a time of daily spiritual exercises is the one who most enjoys both minute retreats and extended periods of silence and solitude. Don't try to do uh, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and prayer before you've started practicing daily silence and solitude. But once you've started a regular quiet time, try scheduling four days or half days where you spend an extended quiet time with God. Put it in your diary or it won't happen. For myself, I try to get to Kirstenbosch four times a year with my Bible and pen and notebook. Try and go on a quiet day and find a spot that's a little far further away from the main restaurants. And use the time to pray, to read, and also plan. What are some of your goals for the next three months, for your life, for your work, your family, your church involvement? If you're married, you could try and do this together. Spend some time alone individually and then come together and share what you feel God is saying to you both. There's so much more that we could say on this topic. A couple of folk have posted their ideas on the WhatsApp group too. Please keep those coming. It's just such an important topic. I think that we often don't do this because we don't see immediate results. If I spend half an hour filling toothpaste tubes, then at the end of that time, I've got a pile of toothpaste tubes to show for it. But if I spend half an hour in quietness with God, then at the end of that half hour, I've got nothing to show for it. Or so I might think. Try spending the first few minutes of the day with God. I think that you will find the rest of the day goes far better. To use the words of Jesus, if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these other things will fall into place as well. May God bless you this week, even as you seek after him. Amen.